Since last July, Tunisia has seen several political changes. Tunisia is in crisis after the president sacked his prime minister and then suspended parliament. There have been clashes in the streets outside Tunisia's parliament following the president's overnight decision to suspend the legislature. In September, President Qais Sayed said he would rule by decree. His critics are calling it a coup. And Saeed tightened his grip on power, announcing he'd rule by decree and ignore parts of the constitution. This February, he dissolved the Supreme Judicial Council. He's issued a decree that creates a temporary judicial council with no fixed term to oversee judges and remove their right to strike. And this week, a national consultation process he launched to help frame a new constitution just ended. But the president's latest moves have upset his opponents at a time when the country is dealing with an economic crisis and food shortages. And many wonder if the country considered the one success story of the Arab Spring will continue down its democratic path. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To understand Tunisia, you can't ignore its significance in the region. It started with one man in one country. Produce figure in Tunisia stood in front of a government office and set himself on fire. Back in December of 2010, a Tunisian fruit and vegetable vendor, Mohamed Bouazizi, set himself on fire in the town of Sidi Bouzid, Tunisia. When the police confiscated his fruit cart, leaving him with no way to make money. His action went viral, sparking protests against the cost of living and the country's then-authoritarian president, Zina Labidin Ben Ali. He was swept from power by a wave of popular protest fleeing Tunisia to Saudi Arabia. Bin Ali became the first in a series of Arab leaders to be pushed out by widespread protests. Fueled by social media, protests erupt in Algeria, then Yemen. Those protests inspired a wave of revolts across the Arab world as people rose up against authoritarianism, corruption, and poverty. It was known as the Arab Spring, but things have changed. My name is Fadl Alirza. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Mishkel.org, which is a news website covering Tunisia in Arabic and English. Fadl has been covering Tunisia for more than a decade. So we got on a call with him in Tunis to check the country's state before going into a constitutional referendum this July. So, Fadl, Qais Sayed, a former constitutional lawyer, was elected president of Tunisia in 2019. Since then, he has dismissed the country's prime minister, frozen parliament, begun ruling by decree, and most recently dissolved the country's Supreme Judicial Council, all in the name, he says, of anti-corruption. How would you describe the state of things in Tunisia right now? Well, I think there's quite a few issues that are going on concurrently, but the main one that I think people are feeling right now is an economic crisis. 
because we're seeing food shortages when it comes to wheat, when it comes to some of the subsidized goods that are very important for the national diet, particularly for poor Tunisians. So that is foremost amongst people's minds, but certainly there's quite a lot of political issues that people are concerned with, whether that's in favor of the president or against the president. We've seen, certainly seen polarization in the last few months. You know, you can't seem to have a conversation about Tunisia, at least in the media, without mentioning this fact. This is a country that so many hailed as the one quote-unquote success story of the region's uprisings in 2011. How far are we from that success, given everything that's happened? It does seem that the democratic system as a parliamentary democracy has effectively ended for the moment. There are promises by the president to go back to some sort of parliamentary system. He's promised to have elections this December. However, we have seen that a lot of his promises have not been followed through, particularly when we look at temporary measures. Things that he said have been temporary measures which have lasted for months. There is a big question mark whether Tunisia goes back to a parliamentary system. However, the president said that he would like to go towards a presidential system. It's a bit unclear, but it does seem that his attempt to have a national online consultation about the political system seems to be following through on his plan to change the political system and perhaps several other very serious reforms when it comes to the structure of Tunisian political life. When Qais Sayed ran for president of Tunisia, he presented himself as a civilian taking on a corrupt system. The former constitutional lawyer was one of the legal advisors who helped draft Tunisia's 2014 democratic constitution. However, he spoke out against elements of the document, and once elected president, seemed to disagree with a constitution that gives the president direct power only over the military and foreign affairs, while daily administration was left to the prime minister and the parliament. The fact that September's moves suspended large parts of the constitution, I think, made a lot of new enemies, particularly political parties that had either been on the fence or that had been even in support of the president. So it does seem like the entire political class does seem to be against President Kaisai. However, while we've seen protests, a lot of them have been largely divided. They've been sort of divided between the different political parties and political groups that have uh, sort of organized on their own terms, but not necessarily united in terms of opposition. In December, the president announced that the country would hold a constitutional referendum this coming July. Then in January... He said the government had started a national online consultation. How has that gone? With the national online consultation, we've seen relatively low numbers amongst Tunisia's electorate. The latest numbers that I've seen are something about 6 or 7% of the electorate have actually participated in this online consultation system. When I talk to people about the online consultation, people don't seem to take it very seriously. When you look at the questions, they're quite vaguely worded. It's set up as a multiple choice answer system. And it's also unclear how this will actually be implemented by a committee that's supposed to turn this into a constitutional reform or a new constitution. So with so much unclear, tell us what we do know. Have you seen the questionnaire? Can you describe it for me? How easy is it to fill out? What does it ask? It's about 30 questions. It covers, I think, five different topics that are grouped according to politics, 
socioeconomic issues, asking about the political system, it's quite obvious that the question is maybe revolving around the president's plan to reshape the system towards either a presidential system or to reshape the electoral code. We've certainly seen criticism from political parties, but not just political parties. We've seen the local transparency organization iWatch saying that this seems to be a vanity project of the president and that he's actually wasted public funds on quite a large endeavor that hasn't really borne fruit and doesn't seem to really have a lot of participation or excitement amongst the population. And is that what might explain the low participation numbers? The president says that the low participation numbers has been mostly about challenges and access issues. In recent weeks, they've sort of ramped up trying to make sure that any of those issues are taken care of by opening new centers where people can go and have assistance in filling out the form. However, it doesn't appear to be purely a technical issue. I think there there does seem to be a sense that the very broad questions and very frankly, in many cases, vague questions that are in the online consultation aren't necessarily a priority for people. There's certainly other things that are pressing on people at the moment, given the fact that we're seeing, in some cases, food shortages, lines at bakeries, bakeries closing early because they've run out of access to subsidized flour. And there's a set price for a baguette at 200 millims. We're seeing that being sold now at 250, sometimes even up to 500 millims. So we're seeing even a doubling of price for what is a staple for people. And we've seen actually that outside of the capital, the problem seems to be worse, that there's even bigger supply issues outside of the capital and that, you know, it's affecting people's everyday life in ways that I think people are quite worried about and and for valid reasons. Yeah. Do you notice the difference in prices when you go shopping? Personally for you, what has it been like? I've definitely noticed that prices have gone up for certain goods, but also there's empty shelves sometimes at the, the supermarket. I've also seen people waiting in line before supermarkets or other kinds of markets open up for the day, hoping to find uh, wheat, pasta, um, sometimes rice. So really basic products that people have been quite worried about. And that worry is understandable. Tunisia's economy is fragile. The country has several loans from the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, and it's in talks to receive another one this year. The outgoing IMF country chief for Tunisia said that the economy of the North African state needs deep reforms. But Fadl told us that it's not getting easier for Tunisia to get monetary help abroad. We've seen that other lenders on the international market have decided basically that they don't want to lend to Tunisia. And that's partly because we've also seen downgrades by different rating agencies, which basically makes it more difficult for Tunisia to continue to borrow, which they need to actually pay back their debts. Tunisia is actually paying more in debt servicing than it is getting in loans. And Fadl says that loans are significant today when the country is in the middle of food shortages because Tunisia imports a lot of its food. It doesn't look like Tunisia will get access to more loans until they sign an IMF loan. Initially, the government had said that they had hoped to sign a deal with the IMF this spring. Now it seems to have been pushed back until summer. But the IMF negotiations are still going very, very slowly. 
So this online consultation just ended this past weekend, and it had many critics. Those against it said it had all the appearance of being inclusive and including what the people are feeling, but actually was a way for the president to impose the political system that he wants. What are political figures saying? Are they speaking out? Certainly, there's been key political figures, particularly the politicians from all of the parties that have been locked out of parliament, that have been frozen out of parliament by the president, uh, have been very critical of the, the online consultation. And people will also say that particularly people who are fans of the system prior to 2019, who are fans of the parliamentary system, will look back and say, you know, these questions are already solved. From 2011 to 2014, this was the time when Tunisia had an assembly whose specific role was to draft a new constitution. And the three years of debate have given us a document that, while perhaps not perfect, doing this whole process again in a couple months through an online consultation doesn't seem to be the right way to go about it. I think that's what critics of the president have been saying generally, particularly from political parties, but I think even people who are sort of maybe just fed up with politics So I want to go back to the president's decision in February to dissolve the Supreme Judicial Council, which was seen by some as an institutional check on his power. He accused council members of taking billions in bribes and delaying politically sensitive investigations, and he has since appointed a temporary council. Tell me about this council. What rights does the president get under this new temporary council? This new temporary council does give the president, uh, according to his own decree, the decree that he's laid out uh, will allow the president to have more direct appointments over judges. He'll also have more powers to intervene when there's a lack of consensus over new appointments. And it'll also, according to his decree, if there are strikes amongst the, the judiciary, that's supposed to be basically illegal now. He's made it illegal for judges to strike about issues that may arise between the executive and the judiciary. So human rights uh, activists and human rights lawyers have laid out very specifically why this is indeed a breach of what we would say, uh, maybe the checks and balances that may have existed as, as much as they did exist. Uh, you know, it was very tentative. You've noted there have been some vocal critics, and hours after the order was published to dissolve this judicial council, we saw protests, thousands of protesters in central Tunis as part of a rally against that move. And it was organized by the Anahda party, which is the biggest party in the now suspended parliament. What do we know about Said's relationship with the Anahda party, and what should we know about that? It's an interesting question. Um, it's difficult to sort of tell exactly what the relationship has been like because there's been ups and downs. We could say that perhaps uh, President Pai Said has felt that he was being undermined at key moments by the Anahda party. They had agreed on a prime minister uh, early on, and then Kaisai decided that he was actually against the prime minister appointment. Fadl says that after the July 25th move from the president to freeze parliament, the Anahda party has been the one who's lost the most. Given the fact that Anahda not only was the largest party in parliament, but the speaker of the parliament uh, was the head of the Anahda party, Rashid Khanoushi, he's made it very clear that 
very early on and other Anatta party members have made it clear very early on that they saw this as a coup, particularly when they were blocked from entering parliament by military. It's a bit difficult to tell because there's quite a lot of divisions that have come out from the Anatta party since then. But we have seen uh, overall Anatta playing maybe the most vocal role in terms of criticizing the president. On top of all of this, the president has called for a constitutional referendum in July of this year. What can we expect from that process? There is not a lot of clarity or transparency around what the new constitutional draft will look like. We hear that there's a drafting committee that uh, will be appointed by the president. In all likelihood, you know, it is to be expected that uh, the members of this committee will be legal scholars who are close to Kai Said. And that's certainly been the pattern. President Kai Said has made appointments in his government based on people he's worked with in the past or colleagues of his in academia. What this constitutional committee will, will focus on is really unclear. This week, after the online consultation was over, the president said there would be a national dialogue about the country's political system. But he gave no details on how it would take place. Work will continue to organize the referendum on July 25th, after everyone is involved in expressing their opinions, positions, and suggestions regarding the new political system. Father, you've been covering Tunisia since 2011. You visit the country often and you have family and friends there. What are your conversations like with your family and friends about everything that's happened and the prospect of what is yet to come? We haven't really seen opposition to President Syed's political moves at a massive scale. And we haven't even really seen socioeconomic protests or mass socioeconomic movements in the way we've seen in previous years. The thing I've noticed in recent months is that people are really trying to avoid following politics. People have sort of uh, turned off, particularly because I think from July and August, that was a time when we saw extreme polarization. And I think that people are maybe trying to cope with the day-to-day socioeconomic challenges At the same time, I think people are very concerned. People are worried that they don't really see the direction that the president is taking the country. And I think people are really worried about more austerity measures, particularly with um, increases of prices to basic goods, whether that's food or energy. Particularly, um, energy prices look to be set to be increasing regularly. And that's certainly at the forefront of people's minds. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Priyanka Tilvey, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliay, Ruby Zaman, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Al-Milek and Munira Al-Dusari are our engagement producers. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs> 